one day I went at four in the morning and stayed for four hours in, in front of a, a dairy uh, product uh, type of a um, retailer. And at eight, he would come out and sign the first 50 people who are in, in line so that they come back at one or two, wait for the truck to come, and they will get whatever. So I went back. And because there are some idiots who just like cut in the line, cut in the line, and they're telling me, if you, if you continue standing here, making, you know, trying to be civilized, you will not get anything. And I, at the end, I got only one small yogurt. And we are six in the family. And we, I put it on the, in the kitchen. My son, he came in and it, in 30 seconds is gone for six hours waiting for it. So this is what we endured during the war. Welcome to Life is for the Living. I'm your host, Rebecca Richman. Warshenshire's poem, Home, starts with a line, No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. In this episode, we will learn about the dangers that drove our guests from their homelands. America and Canada symbolize economic security and opportunity for many around the world. And this is very much what drew Claudia's parents from impoverished northern Italy. However, for her, the poverty was not enough to tarnish her memories of home. Oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rebecca, I really have um, a lot of memories, a lot of memories about my childhood. Um, Just sometimes little snippets here and there. But um, I did go to... um, I did um, go to school in Italy. I was in grade one and two. I lived, my dad came, uh, immigrated to Canada in 1955. So I was six years old and uh, we followed him in 57. So we lived with my grandmother, my paternal grandmother and one uncle. And then we did have... uh, Another uncle and his family move in. He came from the Tuscan region and stayed with us for a while. Things were hard, you know. Um, we didn't have very, very much. But as a child, you, 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 you know, you don't know any better. So it's, it's nothing new. I was telling Milena just the other day that uh, we didn't get Christmas presents, you know. We were lucky to get a piece of chocolate and, a, and an orange for Christmas. Um, but I have good memories of my childhood. You know, I remember being very involved in the church. Um, when I made my first communion, actually giving, um, reciting a poem in front of the whole town, which was for a very shy person, you know, that was quite something. And my mother being really proud. Um, yeah, all in all, it was a good childhood. I had good friends. I went to school. Uh, very involved in the church. We had a parish priest that, um, you know, that took us um, on excursions, loved my grandparents. And yeah, all in all, it was a very good childhood. Didn't have, as I said, didn't have very much, but, but uh, it was enough to, it was enough. 
Nonetheless, it isn't a surprise that her parents' motivation for leaving Italy was... Oh, of course, economic, most definitely. You know, back in the 50s, things that were really difficult, getting a job. Um, yeah, so it was definitely economic. Yeah. And that was such an, a huge influx of uh, even people from our hometown and surrounding areas that, that, that immigrated at, at that time. In communist China, under Mao Zedong, where our guest Debbie grew up, grinding poverty was combined with a totalitarian government and lack of basic freedoms that drove many to escape to America. Among them were Debbie's parents and eventually Debbie. The, the year was born in 1951, and it was during the Chinese communism resolutions. Things are very different then. So um, those, at those days, we really cannot kind of little we lack of freedoms so like we don't we don't have much freedom we had to follow what people tell us to which is the government tell us what to do okay at that time we always we don't have enough food um because you have to go eat in the government office everybody go there you don't have your own food um so it's like it's so so and because you work for the government, so you don't get paid, but then you go eat in the office, in, in the office, like a resident area, I mean, an office, okay? But it didn't bother me that much because I was like nine, ten years old. Right. I mean, I don't eat that much. And during that time, we don't have electricity. And, okay, like we had no, no TV and no hot water. We have boiled water, and and then uh, also, if you don't have a will behind your house, there's no drinking, no eating in the drinking water. You had to go to some place to get the water that you could cook and eat and drink. So it's very inconvenient. Yeah. Okay, but like I said, it didn't bother to me, but I could see. It's hard on the people, very hard. That, yeah, but then as a kid, we, um, I enjoyed it because no light, we just go in the porch and all the neighbors and then people talk, tell us stories. So but the kids enjoyed it, you know what I'm saying? As mm -hmm. a kid, you enjoyed it. And uh, so but the old, uh, old people I know, they, they didn't, I mean, sacrifice, they didn't really like it, but and they can't say too much. So I, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I could see it. You know, you not, you work, you don't get paid. You had to work, eat only once or twice a day. You can mm -hmm. eat it, and you gotta eat fast, otherwise it's all empty. And then we don't. It's just only like a potatoes, sweet potato, cabbage, and rice. That's it. Although it was clearly very hard on the adults. For Debbie, it was actually an idyllic childhood with no pollution and no crime. You know, because there's, there's no car. We never see a car. There's only, like, bicycle. And then it's not many, you know, like, really, like, the sky is blue, fresh mm -hmm. air. And, uh, and then we, well, we know each other. So there's uh, no worry about somebody come to your house or, you know, no, no crimes that much. And then as a kid, you know. Okay, I really like that. Now I thought about it. That's kind of the best time I had because it's really carefree. You know, you don't yeah. have to worry about anything. You know, yeah. And um, yeah. And then my grandparents. Uh, the only thing is 
that is my grandparents really overprotected me because they they don't want me to do anything because they is it's their responsibility. They want to protect me. You know, I didn't. I'm still one piece when they present me to my parents. Right. <laughs> so I kind of because of that, I didn't learn a lot of stuff I normally would like <laughs> swimming or you know bicycle, you know fishing and because. They worry I might get hurt. Yeah, so that's one disadvantage. But as a kid, you don't care. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a kid, it's what you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Well, Claudia and Debbie's parents immigrated to find economic stability and, in Debbie's case, escaped totalitarian rule. The rest of our guests all fled because of war. The Lebanese Civil War lasted from April 13, 1975 to October 13, 1990 starting when Gada was only a toddler and ending up eight years after her family had immigrated to America. Despite this, or perhaps because of this, Gada wasn't particularly aware of the war, although presumably her parents were much more affected by this constant instability. I wasn't a very bright child. <laughs> I was one of those kids that was like oblivious to things and just really didn't think things through, did not you know, took everything at face value. Now, I know there was turmoil, like my my whole childhood, I remember it being, I remember, I, I remember happy moments and sad moments. The majority of my memory in Lebanon as a child was spent on the staircase. Like, you know, we lived in a seven-story building, six or seven-story building, and it was the heart of the building like, you know, when you enter the the building, like where the staircase, that was like the safest place of the building. There was no windows. There was, you know, that's where all the entries to the, to the house, to the apartments were. So when war would break out, my, like we, everybody would just flee to the sta- staircase. So I just remember like, ha- like solving riddles, like people would tell riddles, like, up on the fifth floor and it would like travel down and um and like grabbing mattresses and putting them on the stairs and just pulling each other on the stairs you know just you know just goofing around and playing around but there was also like sad moments in in that you know where like we were rationing food there wasn't enough food to go around and you know my dad and um other men, like the other husbands, would like have connection and would sneak out and somehow and get like get food. But much like Claudia and Debbie, Gada had fond memories of growing up, particularly the sense of community that she had in Tripoli. What I do miss a lot, and I find even like I'm 50 years old now, right? Like, right, like years later, um, that sense of neighborly community that we had where at any given point you could like you never ever felt alone you whatever you needed you just knocked on your next door's neighbor or sometimes you just opened the door and walked into your neighbor's house and whatever you needed whether it be a, you know borrowing a cup of sugar or hey can you look after my child because I need to run and, and grab that. That's what I miss that I so clearly remember. And it 
the gatherings, the socialing. It was like the morning coffees and the evening socialing. Every evening we'd all, the neighbors would just, random neighbors would just get together and we'd hang out on the balcony. And um, that socialing aspect and that like sense of neighborhood that you almost cannot find here. At least I haven't been able to find it here at all. Like the type of socially where it's not planned. It's you just, you don't know who you're going to have dinner with, you know, uh, because your neighbors just pop up, you know, they just come over or you show up or, you know. Crusader immigrated from El Salvador during the Salvadoran Civil War, a similarly protracted and brutal war, which lasted from the 15th of October, 1979 to the 16th of January, 1992, and was fought between the right-wing government and a loose coalition of left-wing guerrilla organizations called the Farabunto Marti National Liberation Front, or FMLN. Unlike Gata, however, the war was front and center for Crusada. Her father, a guerrilla fighter in the FMLN, was killed by the government. This put Crusada's family at risk for kidnapping, torture, and or death at the hands of the state security forces and paramilitary death squads. Thus, her life was thrown into disarray as her mother first tried to hide her children and then eventually move them to the United States. Yes, since my dad uh, got killed, um, my life changed. It's to a 360 degree because now we have to flee. Now we have to hide. My, even my family, my own family could not know where we were because my mom was so afraid that they would trace us. So at one point for almost two years, we were hiding in this little town. No, nobody knew where we, where we are. And then my mom started working a lot and leave us by ourselves since six o'clock in the morning until maybe nine, 10 o'clock when we were just seven and five years old with my brother. So she find her way out and uh, decided to flee back here. And uh, she went and looked for our family, for my dad's side family, where we, she left us over there while she came and make the money so she can go and pick us up. I asked Crusada, who was five when he died, what her understanding was of why her father joined the FMLN. He was just a, I just say he was a rebel without a cause. You know, back, uh, you were not allowed to go to school because obviously they think that they will brainwash you, you know, and my dad was uh, going to school and he was supposedly fighting for the for our country, you know, and then she got into all that mess. And um, that's how he ended. He got killed. Yeah, because over there you had the gorilla and then you have the soldiers. You got the 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 the, the country fighting for their rights. And here's the you know, the, the, the police or the government, no, 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 you guys don't have a right. And then, you know, uh, most of my family got into that, my dad's family. So I, lo I lost a lot of families. Lastly, we have Makramanhana, who immigrated from Iraq in 1991 during the first Gulf War. 
They are the only guests who were the parents making the decision to flee rather than the children. When, when uh, Saddam went into Kuwait and then President Bush, the, the father, came in in Desert Storm and, um, and he, they just bombed everything in Baghdad. I mean, the, the war was in Basra, which is 500 kilometers down south. Why do you bomb Baghdad? And if you want to bomb Baghdad, why don't you come in and, and get, it, get Saddam over? They didn't. They stopped a, a, an hour and a half drive, they said, uh, before reaching Baghdad, and they withdrew. Why did you do that? Why did, why did you hit the electricity? Why did you hit the water? Why did you hit the, uh, uh, the gas? Everything is, is all blown, and we stayed for three and a half months without electricity. We went back to, like, to the 18th century where we have to use candles and we have to use uh, the stove to cook on it, to boil water on it, and we have to, to uh, um, what else did we do? Well, we, we had to tell when somebody goes to the restroom, we tell them all to go to the restroom so there's one flush of the water. Their children, who were very young during the war, had lasting trauma from the experience. Until now... All four of them, when they hear a helicopter flying, they shiver from, from, from uh, the bombs that in, in, uh, during the 1991, when we were hit, we used to go to a, a, you know, part of the house where we have five or six layers of concrete, and I would hold two and hold the other two and they shake until that is over. Yeah. Till now they, they yeah. shake. Yeah, when first when we went to Jordan, wherever he is, especially the youngest one, like if the helicopter comes, he comes running to me. It's going to hit, it's going to hit. I said, honey, we are not in Baghdad. We are here. We are in Amman, in Jordan. It's not going to hit. Yeah, and it took him a long time to... Till he, like, kind of, okay, now it's not going to hit. Yeah? And the one time they were talking, so all of them, they, they have the same feeling. Anytime, if it's coming, like, all of a sudden, they, they like... They all flinch. Yeah. Yeah. What was, as what was it like for you guys mentally to go through that? We didn't know. We were living we, we on... We on, were so scared, but we didn't... We try not to show them. Like, we try yeah. our best not to show them. So... But they knew. Even even the firewalls, they don't like it. The firewalls, they don't like it. They don't like to hear it because we used to say, like, kind oh, this is fireworks. This is... Like, we try our best to show we are okay. But we were... Very, we were scared most likely from the mistake, or like they're gonna hit, and then they said, Oh, this like it happened by mistakes. Well, I used to tell them, like, since we heard it, it's over. Since we are hearing it, we heard the noise, it's over. In in Iran Iraq war, Khomeini used to to send this earth, earth, what they call it, uh, earth to earth missile. missile. That's exactly when you heard it. He said, thank God we are, we are still alive. I used to go looking at the kids before I go to sleep, and I don't know if I'm going to see them the next day. 
That's the way they made us live. And it was the children who ultimately made Makram and Hana make the decision to leave Iraq. Specifically, the fact that their oldest was already being put into military training at school. That time, my son, the older one, was 11, 12 years old. And they started from middle school training them for military. So then when you think about it, I am not sending my son to get killed or be handicapped because of a crazy president who wants to have a war. So I didn't want to live this like with my son. I said, no, I am not going to stay. Anyway, that's it. And of course, all the family and they were laughing at us, like, what what you going to do? What are you, like, really you're crazy to live? We have, like, fully paid house, fully paid car, fully paid furniture. My income for from surveying instruments only, to repair, was projected for August, that August that I left, was $7,000 a month. My salary from morning till till five in the Institute of Technology will pay me $1,500. So I had to leave that. Yeah, I'm not, we left everything we said. We left our house intact, all our photos, family photos. And so they fled to Jordan and eventually the United States. And that's it for this episode of Life is for the Living. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we explore our guests' experiences of the immigration process and learn how the ability to draw a cartoon can affect your chances of getting a visa. If you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or just want to chat in general, you can reach us at, at lifeisforthel on Twitter and Instagram or email us at lifeisforthelivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Life is for the Living podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richman, and produced by Marco Burlo. Thanks for listening.